Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what used to be known as the global war on terror, but what we call the long war. Today, I have a very special guest who needs no introduction, General H.R. McMaster. He's a friend of Generation Jihad and the Long War Journal. He's chairman of the Board of Advisors at the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. General McMaster was the 26th assistant to the president for national security affairs. He served as a commission officer in the United States Army for 34 years before retiring as a lieutenant general in June 2018. And most importantly, HR is a Philly guy, an ardent Eagles, Phillies, Sixers, and Flyers fan, although very few of us admit the latter these days. (laughs) HR, welcome to Generation Jihad. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Bill. Hey, great to be with you. And thanks for all the great work you do at Generation Jihad and Long War Journal. Learned so much from you over the years, really. No, thank you very much, sir. It's a labor of love, as as Tom Jocelyn and I have said for years. Uh, it's a grim topic we cover, but it's one that needs cover. So today, obviously, we're going to talk about Afghanistan. I know that the one of my biggest laments on this podcast is that we just can't get away from it. But the it's the anniversary of the the U.S. withdrawal, and um, we spent a lot of time on Generation um, Jihad uh, discussing Afghanistan over the last month. But I, I think it's you know. It, given what's happened, given what we've seen with the Taliban takeover, the fact that there is no moderate Taliban, that the Taliban government is dominated by the old Taliban, which is the new Taliban, Taliban 2.0 is always Taliban 1.0, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda, which never left, its leader was killed in Kabul, being sheltered by Sirajuddin Haqqani, the Taliban's deputy emir, and as well as its interior minister. It's a topic we just can't escape. It's just too important. It, it, the policy failure um, is, is catastrophic on so, so many levels. Recently, um, HR and I joined Cliff May and Brad Bowman on a uh, foreign policy podcast. If you, if y'all haven't had a chance to listen to it, I strongly recommend you do so. We covered a lot of ground there and took a good, you know, I would say a good 30,000 to 20,000 foot view. Um, um, but there was a couple of things that we, we talked about HR that I wanted to drill down a little further. And the first is the, uh, the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, obviously catastrophic. But, you know, we touched on this at, at the foreign policy, but I really wanted to get your thoughts on this. You know, it wasn't, I think that once the decision to withdraw was made, there was no changing it. And we were given a, a false choice by the Biden administration, full withdrawal or complete reengagement, meaning putting back U.S. a large number of U.S. troops in country to beat back the Taliban. But one of the things I had mentioned and um, was that there was another way we could have disengaged over time. The Afghan government wasn't prepared for us to leave and wasn't prepared for us to leave within three and a half months. We needed to wind if we, if the decision was which I disagreed, but if the decision was to be made to leave, we needed to do it in a way that gave them a fighting chance. HR, if you were in charge of 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 that third way, how would how would you have done this? What would this have looked like? Well, you know, I'll tell you, Bill. It's really the policy that President Trump put in place in August of 2017, and that that policy was to to continue to rely mainly on the Afghan government and security forces to secure their own country, recognizing, okay, Afghanistan is not going to become Denmark. It's going to be a violent place. It's going to be a, a place that is still where corruption is rife, but hopefully reducing over time uh, with our conditionality of assistance and influence. Uh, but, but you know, we, it was no longer a war that we were mainly fighting ourselves, right? I mean, it hadn't been for, for many years since the reinforced security effort of you know, 2010 to 2012 or 2009 to 2012. And, and, you know, that was a sustainable strategy, strategy, Bill. I mean, I, I think we just talked ourselves into defeat. It just kills me. You know, I mean, how about just, how about just not weakening the Afghan security forces, you know, by withdrawing all of our support by how about not weakening the Afghan government by, you know, by not, you know, not permitting them or not making them part of the negotiations in Doha or forcing them to release 5,000 heinous terrorists uh, with, with no, you know, with no reciprocity at all from, from the Taliban, you know, really pulling back our efforts to help uh, with intelligence and, and air support while the Taliban is committing mass murder attacks all around the country, you know, and then announcing the timeline for our withdrawal, stopping our you know, maintenance support. I mean, the list just goes on and on. It's it's almost as if by this time, Bill, the, the, the Biden administration 
uh, was kind of almost partnering with the Taliban against you know, against the Afghan government security forces. I mean, it, it was just crazy. It's it's really. I mean, I still a year later. I can't year plus later from the date of the announcement. I still can't wrap my head around. What President Biden was thinking, was he just so tired of the war in Afghanistan? Was he, I mean, but it almost seems vindictive, the way, not, the way that the withdrawal was announced um, and, and how it was executed. He accused the Afghans of not fighting. He, he said a, a number of things that was, I mean, we have to remember Afghanistan was, was a, a major non-NATO ally. That's, that's just one step below saying we'll come to your defense, no questions asked. I can't. I still. I mean, what are your thoughts? And 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 they took. They, they had seventy thousand killed fighting on the on the frontier. You know, between between barbarism and civilization for the last twenty years. You know, so so I I just think that that uh, what happened is is that we created the Taliban we preferred. You began the show. You know, this your intro with this, right? We. We we created this this uh, this Taliban that was separate from Al Qaeda. We we uh, a new kind of Taliban would be like I don't know progressive maybe. I mean, are you kidding me? And then and and then and then you know a Taliban that would share power. And in fact, th- this delusion was really continuing. This whole story hasn't been told, Bill, about how we essentially were trying to broker a coalition government. This is Al Khalilzad doing this under the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Remember, he stayed on right to to do this, and they 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 had this delusion that it was going to be Abdullah Abdullah and Hamid Karzai uh, and the Taliban that would share power, right? I mean, how how did that work out, right? And, and this was you know they were using the animosity toward Ashraf Ghani. I kept hearing from people as I was calling to say, hey, you guys, I hope you realize what's going to happen. You know, when we withdraw, they'd say, well, they would complain about Ghani. I said, hey. Do you do you prefer Haibatullah Akinzada to 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 Ghani, to Ghani? I mean, are you kidding me? So so I, I just think that they actually cast the Afghan government into the role of enemy, right? Or, or, or and, and took the Taliban out of the role of of the enemy. Yeah, that is I I, I again, I'm, and I'm stammering over my words here because I still did they they must have convinced themselves that the real enemy was the, here was the Afghan government, which shares a, a, a heaping of the blame here in years of corruption and mi- governmental mismanagement. But they, as you noted, they weren't the Taliban. Do you want Mullah Habatullah Akhanzadi? Do you want Sirajuddin Haqqani, who essentially is Al-Qaeda? Where does, where does the Haqqani network end and, the, and, and, uh, Al-Qaeda begin or the Taliban end and the, and Al-Qaeda begins? And, 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 it, and if we wanted the Afghan government to reform, why, why not put some effort into that? You know, I mean, you know, what we kept doing, Bill, we kept saying, hey, we're leaving. OK, now we're really leaving. OK, now here's our timeline that we're leaving. And so the Afghans looked over their shoulders. This goes all the way back to actually Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, right, who who uh, you know, who announced in 2003 that we're pulling out the you know half of the one brigade that we had there. So what so what do the Afghans do? They, they look over their shoulder. Who's got our back? Nobody. OK, well, time to make some accommodations. Right. And and the first accommodation was made by Karzai, where he said to the old warlords, hey, guys, you know, steal with impunity. Right. Uh, and in, in return, just give me your political fealty. So it was this impunity happened from the beginning, right? This capture of state institutions by criminalized patronage networks happened from the beginning because we weren't paying attention. Now, what we could have done, what we could have done is put pressure on the Afghan government. When I was in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2012, I kept saying, hey, guys, we know the approach that, hey, if you don't reform, if you don't reduce corruption, we're going to give you twice as much money. Okay, we know that doesn't work. That's what we were doing, basically. So make make assistance conditional. Incentivize some of the reforms. And then, Bill, you know what we did after the, you know, after the Benghazi bombings? We closed all of our consulates in Afghanistan. And we went into a little cobble bubble, you know. And, and so what if instead of opening up this office in Doha gutter and talking to those jackasses across the table from us, the Taliban, you know, who were who were living in five-star hotels and using gutter as a base for them to raise money, right? I mean, what, what if instead of doing that, we had put that diplomatic effort into the non-Taliban Afghans, right, to get them to work better together? Because, yeah, it's a fractious society, right? Uh, but it, it became more fractious, I think, because of our short-term approach, and because and we didn't put any effort, you know, into into getting them to to work better together, you know. 
And, and it was those it was those divisions, right? The Taliban weren't strong. They weren't stronger than the the non-Taliban Afghans in the aggregate. But because the non-Taliban Afghans were so fragmented, you know, and, and fractious, uh, the Taliban could could you know gain a, a physical and, and especially a psychological advantage. It's, it's an excellent point about the, the Afghan government clearly needed reorganized. This should have been obvious in the mid to to late 2000s that it wasn't working we we foisted a government on afghan society that was not built for afghan society it was very centralized when you have the president of afghanistan appointing what are essentially here in the united states leaders of counties yeah there's right. a recipe yeah, for corruption the district, there. the district right absolutely a district and at the and at the province level appointing all the governors yeah. you know i mean how about even something modest where where like the the, the province nominates three people and, exactly. you know, the president would get exactly. to pick one or something. I mean, there are all sorts of proposals that we never really we never really pushed for or helped the Afghans really do themselves. I mean, that's that's really what needed to happen. And you had mentioned, right, we just keep giving the money. It's the same problem we had with Pakistan, right? We want Pakistan to stop supporting jihadist groups, to stop supporting the Afghan Taliban. Well, the solution to that was let's just give them more money. Maybe that'll get them to stop. <laughs> well, you know, this is crazy. I mean, that's why I, des I describe it in Battlegrounds, Bill, as serial gullibility, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's just like, you know, I, I mean, I wish we could just stop being chumps about with the, with the Pakistanis. Because like every time, you know, a new general would come in or like a new a new political uh, leader, you know, secretary of state or whatever, you know, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I mean, they, they would, the Pakistanis were so good. So good at lying. You know, they speak the Queen's English. They serve great scotch. You think, oh, man, these guys are just like us, right? And and when they tell you, you know, they the, what they tell you is the same line all the time, right? The same line, which is, you know, which is, first of all, that they're just not strong enough, really, to take on the jihadist terrorists. Well, I mean, you know, what I used to say to them is, I'm not asking you to do more against the jihadist terrorists. I'm, I'm asking you to do less, man. <laughs> do less to support them, right? And and I mean, that it should be easier to do less, right? You know, and and then they would also, you know, they would also say, well, we just need, you know, some more assistance, you know, some more, you know, some more military assistance, some more economic assistance. And then we kept writing checks. And I'll tell you, Bill, when I was national security advisor, it was really hard to get the Department of Defense to stop giving the Pakistani stuff. I mean, and that's that's what President Trump wanted. He made it pretty damn clear. He said, I don't want to give them a damn thing until they stop supporting terrorist organizations. And I was like, yeah, great. I mean, let's run with that. But it was so hard, so hard to get people to stop doing it. Yeah. Um. Before and you just anticipated my my next uh, question to you, but before then, uh, to your point about Pakistani scotch, yeah. So before the Long War Journal was burnt, banned in Pakistan, I think it was like 2012 or 2013. They used to send me a bottle of scotch every year to try to butter me up. Um, <laughs> and my friend and I always wondered, uh, you know, I, we would. I was wondering if it was poison, so we would drink it together. <laughs> and then we were wondering if there was like listening devices or tracking devices in the cork, so we would take it apart and just in, in jest, of course. But they do know their scotch. I, I, I will certainly tell you that they stopped after we were banned in Long War journal was banned um so during your time as a national security advisor from Fe i believe it was what february 3 february 2017 to march 2018 you 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 made an effort to um i think and it was a it was working an effort to reshape afghanistan policy take the fight to the taliban cut off aid to pakistan which i think i was very excited when i heard this i even wrote an article and saying you know hey it remains to be seen if we could stick through it obviously you know but uh, the, but that was it was certainly um a very positive uh of a decision by the trump administration and during that time the taliban controlled and contested districts those numbers plateaued and they actually dec started to decrease a little bit a right. small percentage. We were showing right. success with that policy. We were we were crushing them, yeah. Bill. I think we were really crushing them. And and you know, the, one of the biggest things that changed, okay, one of the biggest things that changed is getting advisors back out with the Afghans who could bring in American air power. You know, there, there were all these restrictions on on the force, right? You could you could only have advisors down to like the division level or something ridiculous, right? And you need they need to be down with the companies and the and the, and the battalions. That, and actually, that actually makes U.S. advisors safer too because you're integrating your firepower, you're integrating your intelligence. Intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, you know, with the maneuver forces closely, you know, and, and so that was a big shift, and that made us a lot more effective and made the Afghans a lot more effective. Previously, what had happened is the Obama administration no longer considered the Taliban a designated enemy force, so the only thing you could do is defend after they attacked you. And it was it was crazy. It was crazy. So we made some big shifts that didn't require 
more troops. Now we need some more air power and actually we do deploy some more advisors, but it was, you know, it was like 10,000 or something, Bill, like the idea that, and Brad, Brad Bowman has done some great work on this. Just saying, saying, Hey, listen, I mean, 10,000 troops is, is minuscule, you know, from, from a, a uh, historical perspective. Now, was there an element of risk aversion with the Obama administration as well because of the green on blue or the insider attacks? Was, did that play a role in in not yeah. getting them down yeah. at the you know company in the con or battalion Kandak or the battalion level? I'm I'm sh- I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did, and that was a difficult time, you know. And and what was I think immensely important, and this is what I stressed. I, I visited Afghanistan in April of 2017 to try to jumpstart a decision, right? I mean, just make any decision because what we were doing in 2017 was we were we we were we were fighting still, but we weren't really even recognizing it was a war. It was I think I think it had become almost unethical, Bill, right? Because we no longer had a just end in mind, you know, to use. Uh, Thomas Aquinas's just war, you know, theory and and uh, and criterion uh, for just end. And so uh, when I got there, you know, I, I delivered you know pretty tough messages to the Afghans, like, hey, you got to better get your act together, you know, in terms of reform within the Ministry of Interior, in particular, the Ministry of Defense was going better. But uh, I had a one-on-one uh, meeting with uh, Ashraf Ghani, and and you know, brought up, you know, obviously the you know the the uh, you know the the green on blue or whatever. You know this is the 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 attacks on U.S. forces by uh, Taliban infiltrators into into Afghan forces, and in subsequent meetings they laid out all of the vetting that they were doing, the counterintelligence work that they were doing. You know the uh, the changes they had been made made at recruiting and in training, and it was having an effect. I mean, it was it was the risk was much lower at that time, and uh, and of course what the Taliban wanted to do is they they wanted to have the effect that they did have, right, which is. Is to is to you know to help stoke that you know that that narrative that it's an endless war that it's hopeless you know that the Afghans aren't worth supporting and and you know it's it, it, it that's the only way the Taliban could really win is if we defeated ourselves and they understood that much like I think that uh, that the North Vietnamese the Vietnamese communists understood uh, during the Vietnam War that we they had to get us to they had to defeat our will. Tom, uh, Jocelyn always told me a story about how he went down to Gitmo and he saw one of the uh, detainees. It was a, t- a captured Taliban leader, if I recall, and he had a um, copy of uh, Mao's Red Book uh, that he was reading. And he asked the guard about it and the guard or whoever was escorting him. And they're like, see, that shows they're not radical Islamists. And Tom was like, I don't think you're getting the message here. <laughs> um, and right. that's one of those stories that he told me that well over a decade ago. And it sticks with me. These guys studied I'm certain they studied the Vietnam War. I think they, I think they understood that they could outlast us, that they could chip away at our will, that they could, you know, those green and blue attacks were very, very effective in getting us to pull back from an advisory mode. You have to take risk and, and the, the risk aversion in it crept up into the U.S. military, not just in within the po- political uh, circles, but within the, the top levels of the U.S. military. You could speak better to that than I could, but. It, you saw this. Um, it was very effective uh, strategy by the Taliban. Yeah, and and then you combine that with uh, with the mass murder attacks against civilian targets, and and that was really picking up in 2017 with the beginning of the you know the after the winter thaw and uh, and this was the period of time in which we were trying to give options to President Trump on what to do about Afghanistan, and so it was just blow after blow that summer. President made the decision in August of 2017, and I think gave a really an excellent speech. You know that explained to the American people why Afghanistan matters to us. He did it through the lens of American interests, um, and then made the case for a sustainable, reasoned strategy. Right that that that, uh, that that made sense in terms of achieving a political outcome in Afghanistan, uh, consistent with our long-term interests of ensuring that Afghanistan never again became became a safe haven. Um, and support base for jihadist terrorists, and and that was really to to have an Afghan government and security forces bearing the brunt of that fight, you know, strong enough to sustain that fight. And again, it di- it didn't have to be Denmark, Bill. It just had to be Afghanistan, not under Taliban control. I mean, you know, um, I always I call it Afghan good enough. Like we didn't, in the sense of the Taliban, right? They built their yeah. army to be Afghan good enough. They they weren't going to defeat us on the battlefield. They could chip away at our will. But they were Afghan good enough. They were they trained their military 
and their, their suicide teams to be, to beat the Afghan military because they knew at the end that's what, what would be left behind. And, um, you know, you mentioned something that the, this just sort of popped in my head and I'm interested in your thoughts on it. You know, you said President Trump laid it out and why it's in American interest. And one of the things that always bothers me is, is that people would say, well, well, that's in American interest. But what's in American interest was also in the interest of the Afghan people as well. Absolutely. And, and yeah. that really just needs to be stressed. Our in, the interest converged and, and non-Taliban controlled Afghanistan was important for us just as much. And, but it was more important for the Afghan people. And those are, you should play to those win-wins. And this is what made the withdrawal and the decision to withdraw and how it was executed so frustrated. But um, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, yeah, yeah, Bill, I, this is a really important point, I think, Matt, because this is another element of our fundamental misunderstanding of the war. You know, I mean, uh, you remember the, the narrative of the graveyard of empires, right? You know, I mean, that what that d- did is it assumed, you know, that this was a popular uprising against some kind of a, you know, a colonial occupation, which it was not. Right now, as, as flawed as the Afghan elections were, hell, they were elections, and whenever. Yeah, uh, the, the, there are informal assemblies. The loya jurgas of of tribal leaders came together. They voted, I think, unanimously for a strategic partnership and relationship with the United States. This is at a time even when Karzai was kind of lobbying almost against that strategic agreement, you know, because he had been, I believe, manipulated in large measure by the ISI, you know. So, uh, but this is Pakistani's, you know, shadowy, you know, uh, military intelligence arm of their uh, military intelligence arm of their army. So, uh, so I, I think, um, you know, it, it, this narrative of graveyard of empires played into the end, the endless wars mantra, uh, which led to, to self delusion and self defeat. Yeah, absolutely. I had a conversation, uh, just last evening with a couple of friends, you know, those of us who, uh, if you're listening, you know who you are, um, the, who have talked about these issues and tracked these issues for a long time. And, you know, kind of came to the conclusion we should have known the game was up with Karzai by the, I would say by you know, 2007, 2008, started cutting deals with the Taliban in Musakala, where the Brits let the, the Taliban control the district. And then the Taliban went wild. And at this point in time, we were releasing Afghan um, or Gitmo detainees to Afghanistan. And then they started getting turned immediately released. The most prominent of those, um, Mullah Abdul uh, Kayum Zakir, he... He was released and we sent him to Afghanistan in late 2007. Afghans released him in 2008. He was immediately named the Taliban leader in Helmand in, I believe it was uh, Nimruz or Ruzgan province. Right. They became military commanders and shadow governors, almost all of them that we released. And then he became the the Taliban's overall military leader. And now, just the other day, the Taliban announced that he's their leader in Panjshir, military commander in Panjshir province. He's also a deputy defense minister for the, for the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which tells you about the problem, you know, what the Taliban think about that problem there. I think, you know, but I just think that, you know, we should have been looking long and hard at Karzai at that point. I think you're absolutely correct. I've had those suspicions that the Pakistan's inner service intelligence directorate or the ISI was manipulating him. He was making some pretty significant anti-American statements and flirting with a lot of Taliban leaders, t- taking some very anti-American views. In- insulting Joe Biden when he was the vice president, when he, he was the, he was the vice president elect. Joe, Joe Biden visited Afghanistan before the inauguration of Obama's uh, President Obama's first term. And uh, he had dinner with Karzai and famously stormed out of the dinner in December of 2008. Um, and and I think that I think that's another one of the reasons why Biden's like okay we're we're done with Afghanistan. I think he remembered. I, I think he got out of the Afghanistan that he remembered from two thousand eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. It was a different Afghanistan, a different level of commitment by us. You know, he ended a war that he remembered from years years uh, before. Yeah, and think about it. remember General McChrystal, the issue with General McChrystal, right, with the staff oh, right, members. Right. I think there's something to be said about that HR. I think that's a great point that he he may have just put this behind him years and years ago and was sort of stuck in the late 2000s early 2010s with his mindset I, I don't know well you know look we'll never know and, and he and the mindset is also he also tended to believe that our disengagement from these complex challenges abroad is an unmitigated good remember it was in December of 2010 when he was in Baghdad and he called up President Obama and said thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war well hey you know 
we should have learned from the rise of ISIS a few years later that wars don't end when one side disengages, right? And and of course, in, in Baghdad, we disengaged militarily, but we also disengaged politically, you know, and and we just watched as Iranian influence grew and as Maliki, you know, the prime minister took on more and more sectarian uh, bent to his policies that alienated more and more Sunni Arabs, which then allowed Al-Qaeda to portray themselves as patrons and protectors of beleaguered uh, communities. Uh, and then you get ISIS, right? So, so I, I mean, I just think that, you know, our disengagement from these problems is, ne- is never good. And you know what? You wind up having to go back like we did in Iraq and in, 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 in Syria in a significant way to fight uh, a terrorist organization that took control of territory the size of Great Britain, but it still didn't control a state bill. You know, now you have a terrorist organization in charge of a country. Yeah. You know, and 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 they're issuing passports, and and uh, and you know, the, it, I think the jihadist terrorist threat is much more dangerous as a result. Yeah, absolutely. A, a quick point on Biden. I remember I was embedded with U.S. Uh, military transition teams with Army, U.S. Army in Mosul in 2008, and I believe. Uh, it brought Biden, obviously, but I don't remember if he was president-elect or I think it was still a senator. And he was calling for the partition of Iraq. And I had a meeting oh, yeah. with, uh, there were multiple generals, uh, Iraqi generals. There were Kurd, Kurdish, Sunni, and Shia generals, right? And what Biden was calling for was to create a Kurdish, a Shia, and a Sunni area of, of Iraq. And these guys were wildly confused. And they're like, we're Iraqis. This is our country. Why is the United States want to divide yeah. us? Um, I believe it was Bob Gates who said something to the effect that he's been on the wrong side of every foreign policy. Yeah, he did in his in his in his memoir. He tells a story in his memoir. Bob Gates does of of driving back to the Pentagon one time and saying to his aide, "Hey, hey we have to relook this because I think I agreed with Biden on this." He, got there, he, said, he, said, yeah, never, he said he never agreed with them on anything, and when the one time he did, he was really suspicious of his own beliefs as a result. But uh, but you know, I mean, he was against the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. I mean. Listen, I understand weighing the risk on that, but if the intel's that good, I mean, I just don't think you could be more wrong than he's been in the last several decades. Yeah. No, it's tough. He's got a really strong track record of being wrong, for sure. <laughs> I mean, and this one, I mean, how <laughs> how frustrating is it to, to hear him uh, stand up and say, a year ago, say, Al-Qaeda's gone. Why do we need to be in Afghanistan? To standing up 11 months later and saying, we killed the head of Al-Qaeda in Kabul. I mean- right. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, this kept it. Remember, you, you know, this happens across multiple administrations, Absolutely. though, too, Bill, right? So I know we're, I know we're, we're being very critical of President Biden, but, but hey, let, there's plenty of criticism to go around. It was, it was President Obama who said, oh, Al Qaeda is a shadow of its former self. You know who else said that? Was the Secretary of State under the Trump administration? Yep. He said the same, same the words. same words. I would right? call him the D and words. So- HR done, decimated, <laughs> defeated, uh, degraded, um, and then we had to add a G word with the gone, but it's close enough. Um, yeah, right. frustrating. Right. And yeah, listen, I mean, the listeners of our show certainly know that I am the biggest proponent of sticking the failures of, of Afghanistan on, on multiple administrations. We could, we could do a whole pilot. The David Kilcullen and an upcoming podcast are going to discuss, we go in depth into the, the, um, the, uh, the failures of each administration. Uh, I thought it would be like a 10 minute conversation and uh, we wind up talking <laughs> about it for an hour. So, um, yeah, brace right, yourselves, right. listeners. Right. Uh, so I'm going to turn back, uh, HR to your time uh, as national security advisor. As we noted, we're starting to see success. And then you leave in, I believe that was what, March 2018. Shortly afterwards, was several months afterwards, President Trump reinitiates talks with the Taliban. Now, I know you're not on the inside at this point, but I got to imagine you're still talking to people. Um, if you're free yeah. to talk about this, what happened to change yeah. his, his mind so quickly? Why didn't he see... Well, you know, he, he always, he always had people in his ear with the end, the endless wars mantra. Right. And and so, you know, uh, I I think that it just wore on him over time. I mean, I I really think so. And then I think what else may have contributed to it is if you remember the department of defense wasn't doing any press conferences, man, (laughs) like not, nobody was talking to the American people about the war or, or you really maybe through Fox news, the president. I mean, it's important, I think 
for Americans to understand what their sons and daughters are accomplishing in war. And we were really terrible at that communications. Not that you should try to put a happy face right on, on anything. Afghanistan was still, I mean, a very problematic, you know, uh, country and, and insecure and lots of problems, right? I mean, you know, say all that up front, but also, you know, how about how many Americans got to hear from Afghans about the life that they were enjoying and the contrast between that and and the hell that they were in between 1996 and 2001 under 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 the Taliban? And how many Americans knew what we were doing to the enemy, right? And I think in this period of time, really going all the way back to the Obama administration, because they didn't want to talk about the war either. It was the good war, have, but kind of, let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. And so you get this idea that americans warriors you know who are who are engaged against these enemies of all civilized people uh are are the, are the are hapless recipients of enemy action the only thing that that you that you hear about are our casualties really you don't hear anything about what we're doing to the enemy and you don't want to go back to like vietnam body count stuff or any of that but i mean we ought to be talking about our military prowess what what results that we are accomplishing and why Americans should care about it, right? I mean, think about the Shoreback Farm Raid in 2015. How many Americans know about that, right? How many Americans know about that raid in which our rangers uh, alongside the Afghan forces wiped out the biggest Al-Qaeda training camp that we had ever seen, you know? I mean, that might be something to celebrate, you know, but pe- people don't even know what the hell that was, right? Why didn't we see or video what we're doing of that raid? What- why didn't, I mean... We should have seen what those camps look like. We should have. It's so frustrating. You bring up an excellent point, HR. This is, I always say there's two major failings throughout all of the administrations. A failure to understand the nature of our enemy, which I don't think the Bush administration was 100% guilty of, but he was more guilty of this one, which is the one that all administrations made. Uh, aside from the, what I would call the tactical things of how we form the Afghan government and military and all of those things. But these are like the things that you need to keep the American public engaged. Explaining the war. As you said, we didn't have to be all sunshine and butterflies and unicorns. But explain the American people. We're making sacrifices, but here's the import. Here's how the American, here's how the Afghan people are, are benefiting from it. Here's, you know, who we're killing. It didn't have to, you know, not body, body counts to me weren't important, but something. And I look, I just, uh, right, this like, is, like, like ISIS Khorasan, all the operations against ISIS Khorasan in 2017. You know, and and uh, and uh, you know some of the most heinous people on earth, right? A a spinoff of of various groups, including the the Pakistani Taliban (TTP) um, and Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, and and um, and and uh, or Lashkar-e Taiba, you know, uh, alumni, some of them, but just a you know a, a group of people that that uh, that are utterly ruthless, you know, and and, uh, and and the enemies of all of all civilized people. I mean, how many Americans knew? About just the whole terrorist ecosystem in that part of the world, or the you know, how about the failed Times Square bomber? You know, the story that, that the reason why his bomb didn't go off is because he was dodging, you know, our counterterrorism capabilities, you know, and never got the proper training and 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 and, and highlighting that and saying, hey, this is why it's important that we're there because this, the, we can't allow these terrorists to get comfortable and and train up and prepare these kinds of attacks. I'm Bill Raggio. This is Generation Jihad, and today joining us is H.R. McMaster. We're discussing the debacle that is Afghanistan. Yeah, I'm putting together, I just actually just finished compiling a list of senior and mid-level Al-Qaeda leaders killed in Afghanistan. I picked 2010 because I just picked an arbitrary date and and eventually the list gets too long. There has to be 60 of them. These guys aren't household names, but they're important if you understand what Al-Qaeda is, how it conducts its operations, what its goals and... since the American public didn't understand that, since really our, our press, because our government and military basically disengaged from explaining the import of staying in Afghanistan, of fighting in Afghanistan, our soldiers became victims. And, and that's how they became, that's how, and once that narrative starts to stick, it's, it's all downhill yeah, and from it's, there. And it's, a, and it's a complete misunderstanding, right? Soldiers have authorship over their own futures. They, you know, they, they exercise initiative over the enemy. And and I think this might be part of our recruiting problem these days. I mean, I wish, you know, I, I think the, the I think young Americans don't understand, uh, you know, our our military and and how our military is, uh, you know, is determined to to fight and win in battle. You know, and I think this self defeat in Afghanistan is is one of the reasons why we have a recruiting issue these days, which I hope we we can overcome. And I would encourage 
young men and women to volunteer to serve because it's tremendous rewarding, tremendously rewarding. I mean, if even if you just do it for a few years, you become part of a team that's cohesive, that is committed to something bigger than than yourself, you know, and and a team in which the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you, you know, and that's not really replicated anywhere else, Bill. So I, I hope I hope we do get over this and and we have more young young men and women volunteering to serve in our in our military. I um I served six years myself, uh, two four active and two guard. And when I got the opportunity to embed with the U.S. military in Iraq and then with the Canadian Army in the Afghanistan for for a period of four years. I, you know, those who know me and know, I'll, I'll, I say this all the time. I describe it as my second childhood. It was like going back out. Now, obviously I did it in a comp- different capacity as an observer, but I always went out at the squad level, the company level to, you know, and then I'd step back and talk to a general or a colonel, but I wanted to get out there and see what our guys and gals were doing out there. And yeah, it sticks with you. That that's, you know, when people say, thank me for my service, my response is, the honor is mine. I mean, there's, there's no, there was, it was one of the most consequential decisions I made in my life to serve my country. And I wouldn't give it up for anything. And, and if it's, it's an experience you just can't get anywhere. And you're right. They're my brothers. I, I still get together every year with a couple of buddies and we go camping and reminisce about our time in, in, in you know, in the military. And it's, uh, yeah, sorry, getting a little, little sentimental there, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, hit a nerve. it's true. I mean, it's really true. It's, you, it's, it is a, you know, it is, it is a, um, uh, a band of brothers and sisters, you know, I mean, it really is. And, and, um, and it is tremendously rewarding. It's a privilege to privilege to serve. And and I think, you know, it's very easy to see all like the downside of, of serving, right. The hardships and everything. And, and especially the most difficult circumstances where, when you see, you know, one of your, somebody you love as part of your family in, in the military, uh, make the ultimate sacrifice or be seriously wounded. Uh, but, what you don't, what people don't see are, are the tremendous rewards, you know, of, of serving. Absolutely. And these reports of recruiting being down as well as applications to the service academies, very concerning. We have to figure out a way to turn this around and to reinvigorate. But, the, you know, these decisions like losing wars has consequences, making soldiers into victims has consequences. And we, we have to figure out a way to, to turn this around. Um, you know, General, you are certainly one of the few men who I know who can, who can, who can lead that charge. I, I, I hope and pray that, uh, you know, that these things turn around. Our, our, our nation's defense depends on it. Absolutely. And I think because sadly of the, you know, of the, of the self-defeat in Afghanistan, the world's a, a less safe place. And I think you've seen a redeployment of our, some of our counterterrorism capabilities into Somalia, for example. Um, I mean, these problems aren't going away. I mean, look at what's happening in West Africa. You know, it is, uh, uh, these groups, if if they're not, you know, under some kind of duress, uh, you know, they they become strong. And what they have going for them uh, is they're utterly unscrupulous, Bill. So, you know, it's pretty easy to take control of a of a piece of territory after you behead a few people in a, in a rural village, right? Everybody gets the message. Uh, and so it's, it's they use fear, right? They use fear to gain control of territory populations. And of course, that gives them ability to, to raise funds and it makes them extremely dangerous. Yeah. And that's what Al Qaeda has now, right? It not only has a safe haven, but it has state sponsorship. This is my biggest concern. It's worse than pre 9 11. It's where the Taliban had to at least fight the Northern Alliance. That what you had just said, right? When they're, when they're being engaged on the battlefield, they don't have time as much time to, they, they still try. But their ability to plot and to to train to recruit, they have to fight focus on survival. And once we start taking taking away, or once we start giving them the ability to survive, all bets are off. I always say I do not. I don't know. No one thought before nine eleven that there would be so they would ram airplanes in the buildings to attack us, right? I don't think there's there may have been an individual. I believe someone in the FBI thought of that, and um, but you know that wasn't in our minds. I don't want to give them the time and space. To innovate the next type of attack, whatever that may be. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, we're not talking about American soldiers. You know, at every point, we're talking about really advising. You know, our our partners abroad who take the brunt who take the brunt of the fight. And of course, that's what we gave up in in Afghanistan. Right. Is is uh is is an Afghan army, Afghan you know, police forces that that were bearing the brunt of the fight, and and they're not there anymore. In fact. And the country's uh, controlled by the terrorists that, that we were fighting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to turn back to um, 
the you know that period in the Trump administration after the um, the your strategy was discarded. Um, Zelme Calizade, who was the uh, the uh, State Department's advisor or negotiator with the Taliban, he he comes into into light. He takes the limelight as he opens up negotiations with the Taliban. While you were initiating the strategy, while you were in his national security um, uh, advisor, was the State Department pushing for talks at that point in time? And, and did you have any interactions with Calizade during your time as national security? You know, I, I I know Sal Kozad uh, pretty well. I know him from both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I'm very disappointed in the role that he played. You know, I just have to say that. I mean, I I told him that he knows that. Um, but you know, I I think that um, you know the the State Department, you know, is always trying to negotiate. It's like the Geico commercial. You know, it's it's like <laughs> it's what they do. You know, they negotiate, and so even when it makes no sense to negotiate, they yeah. can't help yeah. themselves. They can't help, and so. Uh, it, that, I, I talked about trying to, you know, trying to get the defense department to stop, you know, to stop, uh, giving, you know, giving stuff to the Pakistanis. It was hard to get the state department to stop falling all over themselves, trying to negotiate with the Taliban, you know, and it became almost like a cottage industry, right? It was like, and, and it, it made good material for, I think for, you know, cocktail parties in Washington that you got to talk to the Taliban, you know, I mean, it was just, Hey, there was no need to talk to them at that point. I don't think, I mean, you know, we forgot just some of the fundamentals of fighting wars. You know, defeating your enemy means convincing your enemy that your enemy is defeated, right? Which means that for in this case, the Taliban would have to recognize they can't accomplish their objectives through military force. Well, what we're, we, we were doing is like the opposite. We weren't even actively targeting them. We we had stopped again in the Trump administration later. You stopped really them as a designated enemy and pursuing them. Then we gave them a timeline for a withdrawal. Then we're talking to them. How does that work? Right? It doesn't work. We were completely misaligned between what we're doing militarily and what we're hoping to achieve diplomatically. One of the common refrains, and once I heard generals start to say this, I knew the game was up for real, was that there was no military solution to Afghanistan. And yet, we watched the Taliban execute a military solution to Afghanistan. They were the ones who wore us down. They convinced us that we couldn't win. And that was very, the, the, the military, the military, and I'm speaking in, you know, I'm talking military leadership here, not you guys at the company platoon, you know, battalion, brigade, even division level, but I'm talking about the top tier leadership of the U.S. military. General Nickerson, commander of Afghanistan said we needed a political solution in Afghanistan. I want my generals to, fight and my diplomats to negotiate. And I think once that that line was crossed, you had General General Nicholson and General Miller, who uh, became the, the last commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan and Resolute Support Mission as well. There there was no chance for us, I, I felt, at that point in time. What, what, what was your experience with that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I have great respect for both those guys. They're both friend of, friends of mine. And I think that their frustration, and this is, I think this is a, you know, this is a, a actually legitimate uh, concern of, of theirs, not, not to speak for them, but there was no political strategy, right? So if you have a political strategy, then, then you can conduct military operations to support it. And if the political strategy, I think should have been that, you know, that, that we were, we, we trying to harden and strengthen Afghanistan against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban. And then weaken the Taliban physically by going after them very hard militarily, but also financially, and then working on the problem inside out by trying to help Afghanistan be more cohesive politically and work better together uh, across the different groups within the country, uh, but then work outside in. That's where the diplomatic work should have been going as well, like toward Pakistan, countries in the region uh, to play a more pro productive role. And then also to to sustain the, the international effort, which was already, you know, bearing much of the burden. I mean, there were, I think there were three times more international troops in, in, in Kabul, um, uh, toward the end than there were U S troops, you know? So, so, you know, I, Bill, I think that that's what they meant. Hey, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what they were thinking at the time, but, but their job was to obviously, as you're alluding to, to convince the Taliban they couldn't accomplish their objectives through the use of force by by kicking their ass, right? I mean, that's what that's what you know, that's what we should have been doing. And 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 uh and we started doing that in 2017. And then we and then we just we just stopped. We just talked ourselves into defeat. Yeah. I, I, and then you had the surrender agreement February 2020, you know. I, I think though, you know, I this I always say, you know, 
It's sort of a version. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. I think that, you know, the generals, when the generals start talking about there is no military solution, they didn't have to say anything. Yeah. I think they, they fed the problem by buying into yeah. that, right? And 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 no, generals because, sitting right, down with the Taliban and and openly talking about political settlements. Like they should have if they didn't agree with it, I felt they should have kept quiet about it. And that that might yeah, be my real yeah. beef with this. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm we're gonna have to wait to see their perspectives, you know, because both of them have been professional and quiet about this, you know, uh Nicholson and, and Miller and uh they're they're both, you know. Uh, extremely honest, forthright people. So I think when it's time for them to give their perspective, uh, I think we'll we'll have another valuable piece of the picture. But I, I do think that you know that you know <laughs> it, it we, they were under such constraints. I mean, you know, and and in terms of you can't have advisors down below this level. You can only have X number of aircraft. You can only. I mean, it was just like we were we weren't serious about fighting it. It, it changed little by little in 2017. You know, the rules of engagement were like, you know, a big paragraph of what you can't do and lures were inter- interpreted. It was like, I mean, I, it was it was really, uh, you know, uh, for both of them, um, you know, very difficult, I think, uh, to, you know, to to take advantage of all the capabilities that we could have brought to bear against the Taliban. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, we, we started to do that in 2017 uh, in terms of the enablers and the intelligence and the uh, and the air support. Uh, and, and then we just, you know, when we started talking with the Taliban again, we, we stopped actively targeting them. I mean, it was, uh, you know, if, if, if you want the enemy to, to, uh, you know, to make concessions, uh, you, you have to impose costs on that enemy. I mean, it's just, it's just astounding to me that we told them we're leaving and then started to negotiate with them. It just makes no sense. But two administrations did that, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Yeah, absolutely. We, they definitely put the, the cart before the horse on this one. It made no sense. And and this gets back to not understanding your enemy, too. I don't think the Taliban really ever were going to make concessions anyway. Look, I could recall reading statements. They, they put these out in English. And one of them that always sticks with me, I believe it was from 2016, where <clears throat> I'm paraphrasing here, but it's almost word for word, where they said, why would we sacrifice ourselves for decades for a silly ministerial post. The Taliban was very serious about Islamic Emirate or bust and uh, they got Islamic Emirate. Um, I want to turn back to, okay. So, you know, you said that, you know, General Nicholson was constrained. General Miller was constrained. <clears throat> then we have the, the, the way the withdrawal was executed, which was, Really, I mean, I think if we talked to a lieutenant or even a sergeant and would have said, hey, we're leaving Afghanistan and we may have to plan an evacuation. Um, we're going to close Bagram Air Base and keep about a thousand troops in Kabul. Is this a good idea? And they would, their jaws would drop. Yet we had generals sign off on this. At what point do you think a general at some point should have stood up and said, I can't execute this? Should, should have General Nicholson or should have General Miller or should have, in my opinion, I think General McKenzie at the point of withdrawal, he probably was the most responsible here. My, my opinion is, and, and by the way, I understand the, the, uh, I just want to be clear. I do understand the perils in how it could be perceived, but at some point I felt someone needed to stand up and say, this is a bridge too far and I can't do this. I can't execute this mission without putting my people in peril, without putting, you know, our, our national interest in peril. Do you, think that was an option or i think i think they did it bill i mean you were going to ask them you know but i think they said hey listen if you give us this timeline and this troop cap it's going to be a disaster i, I mean I, it was i'll tell you I, I think you're right any captain sergeant could have could have seen that happening you know i mean evacuating out of, out of uh out of Kabul airport that's that's crazy there's no there's no security there's no perimeter that you can you're you're pushing right right into an in, into an urban area you know, just just the max on the ground of aircraft and the ability to to conduct an evacuation in orderly fashion would mandate that you would keep Bagram Airfield open, right? But now, now you're talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, probably a brigade organization that would have to be there. But you know that they gave it a, a, a firm troop cap. You know, I mean, I just think that it, you, we have to hold our political leadership accountable. And I don't want to be an apologist for generals and that kind of thing. That's not what I'm trying to do. I do think that there's plenty of, you know, plenty of blame to go around here. But once that, I think the Biden administration and the president Biden in particular was like, 
the military is always going to ask for more. They're always going to ask for more time. They're always going to ask for more troops. What did you not hear me tell you to do? I told you to 2,500 troops and out by you know September whatever you know the, the September first well, September eleventh right? believe it or not at the beginning September, right? yeah yeah I know <laughs> I mean geez but that was crazy that was crazy too I mean I can't believe I know that. right but but it, but it, but that was just a slap in the face of what sure that was. was you know so I um but I I just think that that's what happened Bill I mean and then you know if you have twenty five hundred troop troop cap you can't keep Bagram open you just can't do it now uh, Brad Bowman and I wrote wrote an essay um, in the Wall Street Journal in the summer of you know, before the collapse in the in the in the summer of twenty um twenty uh twenty uh one uh and and we basically said unless the Biden administration does these six things, it's going to be a disaster uh in Afghanistan. I mean it was it was so clear to to any of us who were who've been studying it ser- seriously. And of course these six things were things that the Biden administration was not about to do. You know, and and it was to intensify our, our air support. It was going to be, you know, to keep Bagram open. It was going to be. I mean, these are the, you know, all the things that, in retrospect, were necessary uh, if we were going to avoid this just utter disaster. You know, a humanitarian catastrophe, uh, and then really a humiliation uh, on on our way out of the country. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's uh, once the decision was made to withdraw, he he ran for the exits quickly and was not looking for sage advice. Uh, HR, any parting thoughts before we leave? Uh, um, well, you know, of course it's not over. I think that's the main point, Bill, is it's not over for Afghanistan, right? There are plenty of Afghans who don't want to live under Taliban rule. Uh, I think that we have to really start looking hard at whether or not we will support, uh, opposition groups, uh, who are going to, who are trying to, who are trying to organize themselves and, and, uh, and begin to at least, um, you know, throw the Taliban out of parts of Afghanistan. And if you care about the humanitarian ca- catastrophe there, I think that's really the only solution to this is the Taliban out. Uh, because, you know, no matter how much aid you give, the real cause of the humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan is the Taliban. And so, again, you know, war is an extension of politics, you know, and what needs to happen is a political future for Afghanistan that does not include uh, an, an organization that, that you know, is using a draconian, perverted interpretation of Islam to justify their criminality uh, and the repression of human freedom. I could not agree with you more any more than that. It's uh, we need to consider supporting the resistance. The any money we send to Afghanistan, any aid only props up the, the Taliban. We need to be thinking about ways of helping the Afghans themselves eliminate Taliban rule. General McMaster, thank you so much for joining us and, and please join us again soon. Um, it, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Hey, thanks, Bill. And it's looking pretty good for the Eagles, I think, this year. I'm looking. I'm looking I think so, positive. too. I'm very, very excited. And, you know, I think the Phillies uh, might have a little chance. I know. Hey, they've see. been on quite a run. I mean, it has some huge winning streaks, you know. And I think just a little more pitching, you know, a little more pitching. And uh, Yeah, yeah. And getting, uh, we got to get uh, Harper back, too. I mean, oh, yeah, that's going to be right. a nice add, yeah. a little hitting there, too. That's right. Thank you again for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon. Generation Jihad.